0: Father in heaven, thank you so much again for this morning and for the wonderful news that we have here in the gospel of Mark. And we pray that you'd bless us, help us to know you better, help us to understand our world a little more, and help us to respond to you and your son in faith and trust forevermore. Father, we ask that your spirit would be at work in us powerfully now. Take your word, speak to us show us christ for we ask this in jesus name for his glory and our joy amen british philosopher logician mathematician historian writer social critic nobel laureate and outspoken atheist bertrand russell was once asked if you died and arrived at the gates of heaven what would you say to God to justify your long, lifelong atheism? He simply replied, "Not enough evidence." God? Not enough evidence." When I became a Christian uh, while at uni, I emailed a bunch of my friends to share my testimony. Another friend replied, telling me that she was happy for me, but for herself, she was an atheist. And she would remain an atheist until the day that God appeared before her and said, I am God, and pulled a goat out of his ear to prove his point. And I thought, that's a weird way to prove that you're God. But that's the level of evidence that she wanted. One of the questions I commonly get at the teens group, SALT, I've been uh, part of that ministry, this is my 11th year of the ministry, and one of the questions I constantly get year after year is why doesn't God show himself more often to people? Why doesn't he make himself more obvious for people to believe in him? Now, you put all that together, and it seems that the best way for God to get more people to believe in him and to follow him is to give people more evidence of his existence, perform more obvious miracles, but if you were listening to that Bible reading from before, you may have noticed something. More evidence and more obvious miracles did not work. Some people will not believe, not because there's a lack of evidence. Some people will not believe in the face of overwhelming evidence. In our passage today, we're going to see that very clearly. Today, we're going to look at Jesus from a slightly different perspective. Uh, It was pointed out to me that if you read through the Gospel of Mark, in all but two passages in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is the main subject. He features as the central subject of the passage, and he's the one that moves the story along. Today, we're going to look at Jesus, but from the perspective of the people questioning him. And we're also going along, and as we go along, we're going to start to see that what begins with understandable questions turns into insane bloodthirsty unbelief before we do that though i need to do something a little bit geeky and highlight why this sermon as you may have noticed on the outline is called part two Uh, last week i mentioned that there's a very nice structure to the passage and it overlaps with our passage today and you can kind of see that up on the screen So you can, sorry for the people listening on MP3, message me later and I'll email you the diagram. Now, the structure of the passage looks like this. And you can see as the passage goes along uh, from, this is back in uh, chapter one, last week's passage, uh, that there's this kind of parallel and ascending, descending structure. Now, the technical phrase for this is called a chiasm. Uh, The purpose of a chiasm is to highlight the middle section. You've got to think of it like a burger. Okay, you've got buns on the outside, you've got your layers and your filling, and the most important part of a burger, the meat, right? Amen, brother, right? <laughs> so, chiasms, they can be found all over the Bible, and it's a very common literary structure to highlight again the middle section. Now, I mentioned this structure last week to someone, and they said to me that they would have never have noticed that before. Let me encourage you, If you had just read the passage one time briefly, you might not have picked it up. But if you've read the passage three, four, five times quickly in succession, you might have begun to notice the repeated words and how they parallel each other and how they begin to mirror each other. Now, the point of all of this is to say that from last week, the sermon covered that bit in the chiasm. And so if you go back and listen to it again, you'll notice that I emphasised how the miracles of Jesus emphasised his preaching and his teaching. And you can see that in the, and uh, from that diagram, you can see why. This week, we're going to be looking at the second part, uh, the tail end of the chiasm, as well as look at a few other passages as well. And one of the reasons why we're splitting it up in this particular way is that from chapter 2, verse 1, to chapter 3, verse 6, you'll begin to see this gradual downward relationship between Jesus and the Pharisees. What starts off with understandable questions ends with murderous intentions. And we're going to walk through the passage and see how that works out. Okay, 90s PowerPoint display over. Let's jump into the passage. We open up with a familiar scene. Now, from last week, we saw the increasing popularity of Jesus. People flocking to hear him preach, to get healed, and perhaps to see a healing in action. And I know I would have been a part of that. I'm I'm guessing that we would have wanted wanted front row seats to that as well. And at the end of verse 2, you can see that Jesus is doing what he's focused on. He's preaching the word. Now, into this moment comes a small group of desperate friends. Four of the best friends you could ever imagine. They're carrying their paralytic friend on his portable mat. Uh, Somehow they've heard of Jesus and why not bring their friend to Jesus to see if Jesus can heal him. They bring him along but they realise they can't get access to him. The crowd is too big. It It was common in that time for houses to have flat roofs and stairs going up onto the roof and so up they went, peeling away the roof. I'm not sure the homeowner would have been happy. Peeling away the roof, they lower their friend down. And the paralytic is now face-to-face with Jesus. The moment he has been waiting for. Go back in your Bibles. Have a look at chapter 1, verse 25. You see there, Jesus heals a demon-possessed man with a command. You jump to chapter 1, verse 31. Jesus healed Simon's sick mother. That evening, in chapter 1, verse 34, the whole town brought their sick and demon-possessed to be healed by Jesus, and he gladly does it. Chapter 1, verse 41, Jesus touched the leper and healed him instantly. So the friends, the crowds, the Pharisees, the disciples, the reader, you and me, we're expecting Jesus to do what he's already been doing. We're expecting him to lean in and say, Son... Rise, pick up your mat and walk home. Instead, Jesus leans in and says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now the response of the Pharisees is actually right. Have a look at what they say in chapter 2, verse 7. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And that is absolutely right. The only person who can forgive is the offended party. So imagine for a moment that I walk over to Pastor Ben and I punch him in the nose, right? Big old punch. And then imagine that Elder Dan walks over and says, it's okay, Stephen, you are forgiven. (laughs) That doesn't make sense. Only Ben has the right to say that. Our sin is directed towards God. Only God can forgive. The Pharisee's question is understandable. What Jesus has just said doesn't make sense. And so Jesus throws it back on them in verse 9. Look what he says. He says in verse 9, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? Now you think about that for a moment. On a surface level, it's actually a lot easier to say your sins are forgiven because there's no outward sign that this has happened. If I lost my mind and I walked through the PA hospital wards walking around going, your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven, and your sins are forgiven. Everybody's sins are forgiven. It sounds stupid, but I wouldn't really need to prove anything because you can't see that your sins are forgiven. It's actually a lot harder to say, get up and walk. And so when Jesus says, get up and walk, because that's harder because he would then have to get up And walk to prove that his words are true. And so Jesus puts the challenge this way. To prove that I can do what only God can do, let me do what on the surface seems harder. He's saying, let me perform this miracle to confirm my authority to forgive sins. The man immediately gets up, picks up his bed, and walks home to the amazement of everyone. Their initial doubt and questions are answered magnificently. Jesus proves he can do it, and everyone knows it. And then the scene moves on. Jesus is again by the sea. The crowds are continuing to follow him. And then he picks up another disciple, a tax collector by the name of Levi. In fact, Jesus now begins to spend a bit of time with tax collectors and sinners going into their homes, eating with them, uh, enjoying their fellowship. Now, we're not exactly sure how Jesus was able to do this so well, but he did. He was able to associate with a group of people I think most of us would be uncomfortable hanging around. See, the Bible warns us constantly to be careful about the company we keep. Proverbs is littered with warnings not to be too close with sinners lest they lead you astray. And yet here is Jesus hanging out with these people, not them not affecting him, but him affecting them. And he's hanging out so much that it offends the Pharisees. Jesus' response is simple. Chapter 2, verse 17, read with me. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, there's a a double edge to these words here. Jesus is certainly calling sinners to come into his kingdom, to repent, to believe. There should be no doubt that when Jesus was hanging around these tax collectors and sinners, he was, in his very special Jesus way, calling them to repent and to believe, to trust him and to follow him. But who are the righteous people that he's talking about here? I came not to call the righteous. Who are they? In some ways, it's the Pharisees, but we can see very clearly later on that their actions and motivations are far from righteous. The Pharisees are self-righteous. So Jesus' words have this kind of sharp edge. You guys think you are so righteous and so above reaching out to the lowliest? well, I'm not here for you. Remember, Jesus has come to preach and teach about his kingdom, to call people to repent and believe, and he's doing just that. He's calling on those who most need to hear this message, but the Pharisees take offense at who he is speaking to. Now, things step up a notch again in verses 18 to 22 uh, with an issue of fasting. Now, fasting is the act of restricting yourself from food, you stop eating, so that you can concentrate and focus on prayer of communion with God. Now, in in the time of Jesus and just before, it was believed that if more people fasted regularly, the quicker God would send his Messiah King. And so the Pharisees and John's disciples, they were heavy into their fasting ritual. But Jesus and his disciples, not so much. In fact, not at all. So when Jesus is asked about this, he gives two responses. And the first he says in chapter 2, verse 19, is that fasting is wrong. It's the wrong thing to do when you're at the wedding feast, which makes sense, right? If you have been invited to one of those 13 course, million course Asian wedding banquets, you don't sit there fasting. You make plans to break your fast. But more importantly, Jesus says that the guests do not fast when the bridegroom is with them. Now, there's an echo there of Isaiah, where God is painting himself as the groom, rejoicing over his bride, his people. Jesus is saying, I am that groom. And now that I am here, it is not the time for fasting. The second thing he goes on to say in chapter 2, 21 onwards is this thing about unshrunk cloth on an old garment and new wine into old wineskins. Now, the basic idea here is that Jesus has not come to patch up the old ways of doing things. The Pharisees were experts at keeping the old ways. They invented new ways to keep the old ways. Now, Jesus has come with a new thing. His ways are not the way of the Pharisees. And if Jesus has just come to add onto what they are doing, then it will all go wrong. You see the outcome repeated in the middle of verse 21. The patch tears away and a worse tear is made. Middle of verse 22. The wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed and so are the wine skins. I had this personal experience of this a couple of months ago the range hood over my stove was playing up. The light would not turn on, but the fan was still working. So I thought, okay, if it's if just the light, maybe I'll uh, you know, try and replace the light bulb. So I, I purchased a new light bulb to fix uh, the broken one. Uh, so when I put it in, it wasn't working. I pulled it out and then I noticed that the light fitting was actually black, it had burnt out. So I did a little bit of research online, thought it was good research, ordered a new part, came in the mail, and then that afternoon I tried to replace it and fix it as best I could. I gave it a go. And then when it was all installed and my hands were dirty with all the oil, uh, nothing happened. Not only was the light not working, the fan switch was now broken and that wouldn't work either. I had tried to fix something new. Uh, with some, I had tried to fix it with something new and it ended up making the whole situation worse. So I had to Pull it all out, throw it all away, and go buy a new one. Jesus isn't here to put a band-aid on the old Pharisee way of doing things. If he did, everything would break. Jesus is here with something new. Now you move on to the next scene, and again, things pick up another notch between Jesus and the Pharisees in chapter 2, verse 23 to 28. It's the Sabbath, the day of rest for the nation of Israel. No work is to be done on this day. Jesus and his, and his disciples, they're walking along and they're plucking heads of grain in the wheat fields. Uh, it's apparently a, a, a snack that you can have. You, you rip the grain, you rub off the, the husk, and you can eat the little seeds as a bit of a snack. Technically, technically... This is actually allowed on the Sabbath. But the Pharisees, they had made so many new laws and more layers of rules on top of the original Sabbath laws. Rules upon rules so that the sacred rest of God's people, they wanted again not to be broken. They believed, again in their writings, that if Israel were to be able to perfectly keep two Sabbaths in a row, the Messiah would come. So when they say to Jesus, look, why are your disciples doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath, they're referring to their own laws. And it seems like they're following Jesus and his disciples just to see if and when they will trip up. But this particular example is a little bit more nitpicking than actual law breaking. So again, Jesus says two things in response. First, he points to the story in the Old Testament to do with David. If you want to read the full story, you can find it in 1 Samuel 21, 1 Samuel 21. 21 but long story short it goes like this David and his men they're on the run they're tired and they're hungry they bump into a priest and they ask the priest if they can have the bread that is usually being set aside for God and the priests now under the law it is illegal for anyone other than the priest to eat that bread but the priest out of compassion for David and his men gives them the bread now the point of raising this story is to say that the law is not there so that people will suffer see if the priest kept the law rigidly then david and his men would have suffered the law is there is is meant to be there for our good And that leads to the second thing that Jesus says. He says the same thing in verse 27. He said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Man needs rest. That is why God gave the Sabbath laws. He knew that it was not good for man to constantly work. We need time to stop, we need time to refresh ourselves to be with others, to commune with God. Students, you are not created to study 24-7. Workers, you are not created to be working 24-7. Mothers, it's a 24-7 job, sorry. (laughs) But fathers are meant to be there to help out as well. God gave us the Sabbath laws because he knew that we needed that rest. God did not give the Sabbath laws because he needed man to keep them. He gave the Sabbath laws for our benefit. We are not meant to keep a bunch of rules for the benefit of the Sabbath. It doesn't work that way. And, and Jesus himself is Lord of the Sabbath. When Jesus returns and brings with him the eternal kingdom, then we will be in eternal rest, eternal Sabbath. And there, Jesus will be king. He is Lord of the Sabbath. And the Pharisees completely missed this, focusing so much on their own rules. They laid heavy burdens on people to do this, do that, keep this rule, keep that rule. And then and only then will God be pleased. But Jesus has come to say no to these extra demands. He has come to set us free from these demands. He has come to show us that God wants good for us. And by trusting Jesus, we will enjoy that goodness and rest forever. But again, the Pharisees missed all of this. Jesus is showing a mastery of understanding and interpreting and applying god's word he has shown a mastery over sin sickness and and demons and the pharisees are ignoring all the evidence that is right in front of them and this leads to them setting up a trap for jesus In our final scene, chapter 3, verse 1 to 6, again, we're on another Sabbath. Jesus is again back in the synagogue, the place he loved, the place he could open God's word and teach about his kingdom. And then we're told in verse 2 that the Pharisees have moved the chess pieces together to intentionally trip Jesus up. It's not that they are there to see if Jesus could heal this man. They already knew that he could They have set up this disabled man right in the middle of the synagogue so that, as we read at the end of verse 2, they might accuse him. Jesus walks right into the trap and he springs the trap but on them. See what he says in verse 4. Again, it has a double edge. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? Now look at that double edge again. Jesus could be saying, is it lawful for me on the the Sabbath for me to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? So he's asking everyone around the room whether it's right for him to heal this man or to let him suffer in his disability. Which one's right? So he could be saying that. On the other side, he could be saying this. Is it lawful on the Sabbath for you to do good? or to do harm, to save life or to kill. He already knows that they want to trap him. He already knows that they want to accuse him and then kill him. And So he shows, their, he throws their hypocrisy back to them. You're making a fuss over whether I will break the fourth commandment and there you are plotting to break the sixth commandment and murder me? By now, you might have noticed in the Gospel of Mark that whenever anyone asks a question of Jesus, Jesus responds. Here, Jesus is asking them a question. And how do they respond? Verse 4, end of verse 4, they were silent. It says everything. So Jesus looks around the room at each and every one of them in anger. My kids know very well daddy's angry face. They know that when daddy is angry they are in trouble and they shrink back. But not with the Pharisees. Mark tells us that Jesus is grieved at the hardness of their heart. They have seen Jesus do massive miracles but they are choosing to ignore all of that now the rest of the scene plays out jesus heals the man but now the response is completely different to the start of our passage remember at the start with the paralytic he heals that man and everyone is amazed and everyone praises god and now jesus heals this disabled man and the pharisees run off and plot to kill him and that's the end of our passage this morning I've been greatly and wonderfully surprised as I've been preparing through and reading through the Gospel of Mark uh, again this time around because I've noticed and have, have had it pointed out to me that these stories in the Gospels are not assembled randomly. Mark has been very deliberate about the placement of various stories. You see, on the surface, these passages look like kind of five random scenes that have just been kind of pieced together. But with each successive scene in our passage, we can see the increasing hostility faced by Jesus from the Pharisees. Hostility which increases as time goes on, and it's rooted in a hard heart. Jesus shows clear authority over sin, sickness, demons, disease. The miracles we've read affirm his teaching that the kingdom of God is near. God's king, Jesus, is here, So the right response, the only response that makes sense is to repent of your sin and to believe him and turn and trust in Jesus. But the Pharisees do none of that. Their distrust and hostility are not because they lack evidence that Jesus is king. They reject Jesus in the face of overwhelming evidence. And why? As Jesus gazed around the room in anger, he was grieved. He saw their hearts, and they were rock hard. Unbelief, rejecting Jesus, these are the symptoms of a spiritually dead heart. Now, in some ways, this isn't new. God's prophets have always been rejected by God's people. It's an all-too-familiar theme as you read through the Old Testament, particularly as you read through the book of Kings or the prophets themselves. And here we are, the greatest of all of God's prophets, God's king himself, appearing in the flesh, still rejected because of the hardness of the hearts of his people. And if that is true of the Pharisees, how much more true of ourselves? Why do some people remain in their unbelief despite how much evidence we throw at them for the reliability of scripture or the trustworthiness of the gospels? Why do they continue to reject Jesus even after we give them solid arguments for the physical resurrection? Some people do not believe because of a lack of evidence. They do not believe because of their hard heart. It's a spiritual condition, what the New Testament later calls being dead in our sins and transgressions. This is how Paul puts it in Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Paul says it there. In the deadness of sin, we do not follow Jesus. We follow this world. We follow the prince of the power of the air. We follow Satan and his desires. And then we take this rebellion further. Paul says in Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now there, Paul is talking about the truth of God revealed in creation. In creation, we can see that God is a powerful God, that there is a God, and that we are accountable to Him. But here, there's this horrid parallel that perfectly summarizes what the Pharisees are doing. By their unrighteousness, they are suppressing the truth, the truth which is as plain as the day. Jesus is the authoritative king of our lives. The evidence is overwhelming, and yet they suppress this truth. And they are filled with murder. Why do some people reject Jesus? At the root of it, it's a hard heart. Incapable and unwilling to accept the truth claims about Jesus. There are people in our families And you know your friends who will just not respond to our sharing. You know their names and their faces. And I know for some of you it has grieved you deeply. They are your parents. They are your sons and your daughters. They are your friends, your co-workers. The only hope that we have and that we can have for our friends and our family is not that we can just try and convince them more with more arguments and more evidence, although it's important for us to be equipped to know and understand that. Our biggest hope is that God would soften their hearts and overcome their unbelief. In the mercy of God, He has made us spiritually alive when we were spiritually dead. He made us to know and trust Jesus This is how Paul puts it in Ephesians 2 as he carries on. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So pray and do not stop praying that God would bring to them life even while they are currently dead in their unbelief. God is able to do it. He did it in you. He did it in us. So do not doubt that anyone is beyond the hope of being his. Paul reminds us himself that if God can choose someone like him and save him as hard-hearted as him, then he can save anyone he chooses. So pray that he would In his sovereign mercy and grace, soften the hard hearts of those we love. This passage doesn't have nice things to say about unbelief. Nor does it have nice things to say about the Pharisees. They bring that on themselves. But this passage does have some nice things, some very nice things to say about Jesus. Jesus is the one with the authority to forgive our sins. Jesus is the one that does that at the cost of his own life. Jesus is the doctor who has come for those of us who are sick. And he calls each of us to follow him. Jesus is the one who brings his kingdom near. And it is so wonderfully new. It is not just a patch job on an older religion. Jesus is compassionate. He is here for our good. I don't know if you caught this news during the week. Abigail Disney, uh, the granddaughter of Roy Oliver Disney, who co-founded Disney with his brother Walt Disney, Uh, she has been an advocate for social equality reforms and has some very strong views on the rich and wealthy in society. Even as herself, she is worth $500 million. Now, During the week in an interview with CNBC, she dropped this line about CEOs. If your CEO salary is at the 700, 600, 500 times your average workers' pay, there is nobody on earth. Jesus Christ himself isn't worth 500 times his average workers' pay. I had to listen to that interview. I, I wanted to give her the benefit of the doubt. But to be clear, she's saying that if Jesus was a CEO... And he was being paid 500 times the average wage. So let's calculate that. In Australia, the average wage is $75,000, according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics. 500 times 75,000 is $37.5 million. She's saying that Jesus is not worth $37.5 million. And you know what? She's right. But not for reasons that she thinks. The Gospel of Mark has already revealed the worth and the value of Jesus. To pay Jesus $37.5 million for what he does for us would be a shameful insult to his worth and value. Not only has Jesus got the authority to forgive our sins, but he gives his life so that we will be forgiven forever. He comes not to lay more heavy burdens on people. He has come to give them life and joy-filled obedience. He has come to give us ultimate and eternal Sabbath rest. Jesus is not worth $37.5 million a year. The evidence is clear. He is of infinite value and worth. And this is our God. Praise God for that. Let's follow, let me pray and ask that God will help us to follow him all the days of our lives. Father in heaven, the Pharisees in this passage today did not see the worth and the value of your son. And instead they grew hostile against him in the face of all evidence. And so we pray that your spirit would always keep our hearts soft so that we will always see the worth and the value of Jesus, the infinite worth and value of Jesus. Help us to be astounded by him again and again. Help us to respond to him in awe. Help us to not be so familiar with this gospel that we breeze over it and miss how wonderful Jesus is, how great is his forgiveness, how intense and supreme his authority Help us to not miss this. Help us to know Jesus deeper and better, to grow our love and our affection for him and to grow in our obedience as we follow him. For we pray this for his glory and our joy in his beautiful name. Amen.